Well, it is great to be back tonight uh, in our study of Christian maturity. And if you're new tonight, if you're just, or if you're just joining us, we've been uh, at this series for about six weeks now, I think is, I think is right. And it's a study focused on, as Pastor Brian said, how we grow as Christians. Again, this is just a synthesis, a uh, complement really to what's going on uh, every Sunday uh, as we're working through various portions of Scripture, in this case Romans. And specifically, this series is about how we make progress towards what the Bible describes as maturity. God saved us, we've seen, uh, with the intention that we not stay spiritual babies. He wants us to grow, to grow to maturity, to, ri- to arrive maybe at what we, we would call spiritual adulthood. Ultimately, this is aimed at, where this is all headed, is complete perfection. We know that when Christ comes back, he's going to eliminate our sin and he's going to eradicate his presence in our lives once and for all. But in the meantime, right now, God still wants us to make progress. Progress slowly, step by step. And that progress is toward what we're calling maturity. Maturity, toward spiritual adulthood. It's toward a life that's consistent, we might say. It's wise, it's steady. It's toward a life that's governed by faith in Christ and not by what we feel. And that's what we're after in a series like this, is is to really to cement the process of what it means to grow up, to learn how to grow to maturity. And so for the last several weeks, we've looked at our role in this process. What's our responsibility? And we've seen that we definitely play a role We don't sit on the sidelines when it comes to growth. We're not passively waiting on God to kind of zap us and um, make us into different people. It just doesn't work that way. God's designed it in a specific way. We've seen that God is energizing us. He's working in us, and he's providing that energy for something, right? He's energizing us to what? To exert effort. He wants us to work hard in this process and not sit idly by. He's strengthening us, we might say, to strive hard for that great goal of Christ's likeness. And we certainly, we certainly play a crucial, crucial part in this uh, process of growing up to maturity. But what is our role? What's our role? How could you boil this down? And what would you say? If you boil it down, if somebody asked you, what is our role in the growth process, and you had one word, what would you say? Yell it out. It's okay. One word. Obedience. Okay. Faith. Yeah. So really, if you're talking to Paul, he would probably say there. Those are two interchangeable ideas. Um, obedience flows from faith. But yeah, I would. I would say faith. Faith is our central responsibility in the Christian life. It sounds super simple. Not complicated at all. It's hard, but it's not complicated. And our role in this process is to trust Jesus, to learn to trust him, to fight to trust him. It's certainly a fight to the death at times, is what it feels like when we're wrestling our desires to the ground. It's challenging to trust Jesus' words, especially when they seem so foreign sometimes to our experience. It's difficult to trust the truth when it cuts against our desires. 
against what seems best to us in the moment. But that is faith. And fighting for faith is how we make progress toward maturity. It's our part to play in growing up. Now, what I've tried to do in this series is to break this fight of faith down into stages, we might say. And initially, we looked at where this this fight of faith starts. It starts by learning to respond rightly to our sin, is what we said. Learn to respond biblically, rightly, in the way that Christ would have us respond when we are in sin. And that's because when we first start out in the Christian life, we start out in what the Bible describes as immaturity. And immature people are usually caught in patterns of sin and easily ensnared. We said last time it's like we're caught in that bear trap out in the woods. And the first thing we need to do if we're going to get out of the woods is to get out of the trap. So we need our foot free. And that means if we're going to make progress, we've got to know what to do when we're ensnared, when we're in sin, how to get out of that trap. We can't shift blame. We've got to humble ourselves. We have to take responsibility for our sin and look to Christ's promises to get out. And that's where the fight starts. That's how we get out of the trap of ensnarement. And now with your foot free, we said last week, it's time to get out of the woods. The woods are full of more traps, and the path back to those traps are very well-cut paths, well-worn. They're paths you know all too well. You've walked in them so many times before, and you know the way in those paths almost instinctively. And in Paul's terms, we still gravitate towards sin because we are still influenced by what he describes as the old man, the old self. We looked at him last week. This old self is not who we are anymore, but he is still close by. He's still seeking to exert influence, and he's very deceived. And out of all that deception, we said, flows these evil desires. And that's why we still crave sin at times, even as believers. This old man still exerting his influence, or at least he's trying to. And he's beckoning us back to those familiar paths those well-worn paths, because he wants us to get caught again and, sna- and stay there, stay ensnared in sin. So we said if we're going to continue this fight of faith out of the woods, if we're going to find real transformation, if we're going to grow to maturity out of these besetting patterns of sin, then we have, to, we have to battle, we have to learn how to deal with the old self. And last time we were together, we, we began to look at Paul's map. His, his map out of the woods, we might say. And this was over in Ephesians 4. And there he gives us three really basic instructions. Uh, we're going to be back there again tonight, so if you would, just go ahead and open Ephesians 4. He gives us really three very basic instructions that are familiar to most of us here tonight. And you can think of it as his, as his road map out, his, his map out of the woods, and his map to fruitful living. last time we looked at the first of these three instructions, and Paul told us there the first one was to put off the old self. And this week, we're going to focus on that second instruction, that instruction he describes as renewing our minds. 
And that's the topic for tonight. We could call tonight's message, Fighting by Faith to Renew Your Mind. Fighting by Faith to Renew Your Mind. Now, just to get our bearings, let's reread this familiar passage, beginning in verse 20. Paul writes, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And here it is. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul's doing in this passage, he's giving us a roadmap out of the woods. And he does it with these three instructions. They're straightforward. But they also belong together. So you can't just separate these instructions out. They all, they're a package deal. There's a lot of bleed over um, between these instructions. I'm, tre- I'm treating them all. I'm taking them one message at a time. But the, my goal is not that you see them as isolated things, but they're all together. We're going to see that tonight. There's bleed over between these instructions. So we're going to pick up where we left off, and we'll kind of get a running start by looking at that first practice again. Practice number one, trashing the old self, as we said. Or as he says here, putting off the old self. We're going to get out of the woods. That's the first thing that we have to do. We have to totally trash the old self, Paul says. And what he's getting at, if you want to summarize it, is you you can't trust the old navigation system. It's like those old GPSs that we used to have. Remember those? Before the flawless Google Maps. Garmin's. Our silent students have no idea what we're talking about. Would that ever happen to you where you're, you, you got one of those Garmin's, but it's like way outdated, and it's telling you to turn places that roads don't exist? I, usually in those scenarios, it's just best to kind of throw that model away and, and you know, get a smartphone and pull up your Google Maps, right? Like that's, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the answer now. You can't repair that can't salvage it. You've got to throw it out and get a new one. And that's putting off the old self. It means we, are dis- we have to discard that old self completely. And to do that, Paul says we have to know some things about our old selves and its relationship to us today. And he says, first, it's not who we are anymore. He says it belongs to your former manner of life. Back in verse 22. That means we can't keep identifying, we said, with that old self. It's not you anymore. You can't, so that means you can't say things like, I guess I'm just an anxious person. It's just who I am. It's not true. That was the old you. Now you're a saint. You're in Christ. And you just happen to still struggle with anxiety that Christ is going to be helping you with. So that's how we have to think. That's not who we are anymore, this old self. And not only is he not our identity anymore, but the old self is actually really messed up. Like, you can't repair the old self. It's, it's messed up. It's corrupt, Paul says. It's corrupt through and through. It's like that dead skunk in the living room. Nothing to do with that except get it out of there, right? You, you, there's, there's nothing good that's going to come by leaving him in the living room. So get it out. Nothing about our sinful nature is worth salvaging. Nothing about it is worth holding on to. And that's his point when he calls it corrupt. 
or if we could change the metaphor, it's not a reliable map that needs a minor update. It is a completely unreliable map. It's the wrong map, in fact. We cannot trust the desires of the old self, Paul says. We can't trust what we feel because our old self is deceived. He says it's corrupt. Our old self is corrupt according to the desires of deceit. And if you remember back last week, he's saying that our desires for evil, our cravings for sin, that comes from somewhere. That comes from our deceived nature, our deceived mind. We've fallen prey to deception, and so we crave the things that are going to kill us. Our old self doesn't know what is best, in other words. Our old self thinks what's evil is actually good. It makes the wrong assessment. And Paul's point is just, just it's completely unreliable. So we can't trust what we feel. And instead, tonight Paul's going to turn the corner, instead we have to learn to fight the propaganda. So how do you do that? What is the best defense against deceit? Not a trick question. The truth. We have to know what is true. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in this second instruction. He says, we've got to renew our minds with the truth. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. If we want to get out of the woods and, and out to maturity, not only do we need to trash the wrong map, but we've got to know the accurate map. And that map is the truth. Now this is such a vital theme from Genesis to Revelation, but one of my favorite passages on this is in John 8, when Jesus promises that his disciples would know the truth and the truth would what? Set them free. The truth will set us free, Jesus says. And that's the study of the map. The study of God's word is what Paul describes here as mind renewal. But what exactly is renewal? What does that mean? Talking about the concept of renewing our minds. What is it? What is renewal? Do you want to know what it means? Make something new. And here Paul is targeting how we think. It's new thinking, specifically. And he says it happens, his words, in the spirit of our minds. Now, that's just like the, the, the control tower, right? Like it's, it's the head of the stream, you might say. It's the most influential part of who you are. Paul's point is if you renew your thinking with the truth, then everything else downstream eventually flows. It, it, it follows, right? And that means if we want to mature, if we're going to mature out of our sin patterns, we have to start thinking differently. We have to change how we think fundamentally. And that means we have to expose the lies that have been influencing us for far too long. Now, how do we do that? How do we expose lies in our thinking and then replace those lies with truth? 
a great question. And I know that when I'm deceived, it is hard to see that I'm deceived. That's when Jesus feels the same way. Um, definitely, the, definitely the case. That's the nature of deception. You don't know it. But last week, I told you the telltale sign of deception, that, there's, that you're deceived. Remember what it was? Sin patterns. That's right. Anytime you're sinning, anytime you're in transgression, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you're deceived. That deception is further upstream in your life. Meaning those patterns of, let's say, fearing the future. Or those patterns of anger and irritability in the home. Those patterns of lust. The patterns of the fear of man and caring so much what other people think of you. Those signal something. It signals that we're deceived. It signals that the presence of deception is in your thinking. It signals the old self is winning in his propaganda. He's convinced you of a lie, and that lie churns up your desires, and you choose to sin. The fear of the future. Fear man. So if we're going to renew our minds, we have to identify the sin pattern. Or like we said last time, we have to isolate the circumstances. So we talked about this a bit under the first practice of trashing the old self. But let's, let's pick it back up here. We've got to identify the sin pattern. We've got to isolate those circumstances that we're sinning. Kind of narrow it down. And last week, I encouraged you to think about a temptation that you encounter regularly. Any of you do that? No? Okay. Back to it. Well, this week, think about a temptation that you encounter regularly. Think about one now. One of those besetting sin patterns that you struggle with. It might be irritability. It might be depression. Complaining. Comparing yourself to other people. No matter what the struggle is, you know that deception is lurking in the background. Right? So next, after you've identified that sin pattern, you want to carefully consider what you are telling yourself during those temptations or the moments of your struggle. Remember, that, that deceived self is constantly talking to you. It's constantly making assessments. It's constantly telling you what, you what it thinks is best and beneficial. So ask yourself, what's that real that's going in my head? Last time we, taught, we, we called it capturing your thoughts. And I just mean by that, you, you have to have some way to see what you're thinking. Sounds kind of funny, but you want to get those thoughts out in the open. You kind of want to smoke out what that old self is saying. And what I do, just practically, is I encourage people, at least in the beginning, to write these things out. Don't be scared to actually get those thoughts out on paper, but it's okay. You can throw them away. You can shred them later. Um, but why do I encourage that? Well, because it probably just feels second nature to you what you're saying. Almost everybody I, I counsel in the beginning kind of puts up a little bit of resistance to me on this, on this point. Like, God, I'm not saying anything to myself. But the reality is the thoughts are so second nature, you don't even notice them. You feel like it's just part of your operating system. You probably don't even know you're talking to yourself, but you're actively making assessments in these areas. So just take some time and jot down what's running through your head when you're tempted. 
or when they're struggling with a particular sin pattern. And I guarantee there will be some deception laced in those thoughts. As you get more practice with really taking these thoughts captive, you won't have to write them down as much. You kind of know, you see them coming from a mile away. You know that these, these, you know what these things are, okay? But for now, if you're on the front end of this process, it's helpful to just jot them down so that you can do the next step, which is to examine the underlying beliefs of those thoughts. Examine your beliefs. And what I mean here is you, you take a moment and you really ask, okay, you ask this question. What am I saying here? Like, what am I really saying with these thoughts? What do my words reveal about what I believe? What, what is this real, this thing I'm saying all the time to myself, what does this reveal that I believe about myself? About God? About other people? What is my active belief that's driving these statements that are flo floating around in my mind? And usually, I mean always, the real in your head is flowing out of a belief of something that you've assumed to be true. It's flowing from an assumption that's gone unchallenged in your life. An assessment that you think is accurate. And then you respond accordingly. We're going to illustrate this in just a second, so just hang with me. I want, to lay, I want to lay this out, and then we'll work through some examples, okay? Once your thoughts and underlying beliefs are laid bare, then it's time to analyze and evaluate these thoughts with the truth. It's time to put a biblical lens on those thoughts. And when you're staring at that page, you're staring at your thoughts, just ask this one question. Is what I'm telling myself true? Is it biblical? Now, I do this myself, um, and I've done it for a long time, just especially when I'm highly emotional in a particular sin pattern, just kind of you know, getting, it, getting it out on, on paper. And often as I'm writing these things out, as I'm writing out that reel, I'm noticing how off my thinking is like before the ink is even dry. It's embarrassing. But if, if any of you practice this really for the first time this week, kind of after last week's message, you started trying to jot out some of these things, you probably felt it too. You probably kind of, as <laughs> you're writing it, you're thinking, ooh, I can't believe I'm actually saying this or I'm thinking this. You're irritated with a situation at work or you're irritated with the kids and you start jotting down what you're thinking and it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? You can see right through yourself before that ink dries. That's some of the time. But other times, it's not as clear. Especially so if you're on the less mature side. Like you just don't have as much scripture. You don't know as much truth and so it's harder to evaluate your own thinking. And not only that, but oftentimes, like I said, we're pretty emotional when we're sinning. Our fears are just flying out of control, and they, but they seem so viable to us, right? 
Or maybe we're angry, we've been sinned against. And it's so easy to feel so justified in our anger. No deception there, you know, like, I, I know I'm right. It's hard so many times to sort through the lie. And that's why we need to be part of a faithful church. That's just like one reason of many why we should be part of a faithful church. But this is so important. We need more mature believers to help us evaluate. We need good, faithful preaching that comes to us from the outside, telling us about God's truth so that we can have truth in our, at our disposal. So many times I've been helped by others when I'm trying to discern the lies in my thinking. And it's really expedited the process. Um, a lot. And we've referenced Galatians 6.1 a number of times in this series, and, and Paul says there that if we're ensnared, we need a spiritual person to restore us. And that includes what I'm talking about right here, helping us see the lies in our thinking, helping us pinpoint where our thoughts are deceived. But he doesn't just say that we need each other's help over in Galatians. He says it right here in Ephesians as well. He says it once before our passage and once after our passage. So look before, back, back in chapter 4, verse 16. Really, after he's talked about this, this need that we have for, for the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers back in 11 to equip us for the work of ministry, he goes all the way down to verse 16 and says, from whom the whole, or excuse me, verse 15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the, the idea in this passage is as the, as the, the shepherds and teachers, and as they're, as they're unpacking what the apostles and prophets have written down for us, as that's being worked out in the congregation, as that truth begins to resonate, then it, then it resonates within the membership, and the membership speaks the truth to one another. We're speaking the truth in love to each other, and that helps the body grow. What is that being truthful? That's exactly what we're talking about right here. We're bringing the truth to one another. We're helping expose the lies that we're tempted to believe. So that's once before our passage, and then look right after our passage. Verse 25. This is how central this idea is. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, meaning having put away that deceit in your life, let each one of you, every single one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the pastor's job. Well, that's, that's Joe's job over here. He's gifted in this way. He says, let every single one of you speak the truth. And that comes as we learn to put away that falsehood. So the church is crucial. One of the roles of a healthy church is that it speaks truth to you. The church is saturated with people who know the truth. And the more mature members can help the less mature discern their deception. And so just let me pause here, because pride's so insidious. And let me make an appeal to you. If you're deceived in your thinking, you know you are because you're trapped in the sin pattern, please do not let pride hinder you from seeking help. Think about how quickly you can expedite that fruit bearing that we were talking about in, in Romans this morning. You've got one life, one life to bear as much fruit for God 
as you possibly can. So please don't let pride keep you from seeking that help. You can be much more fruitful in your own life. You can expedite the process. And not only that, but you can become helpful and more useful to others much faster when you humble yourself and you seek this kind of help. What I've noticed is as I've grown, it's painful growth, right? But as I've grown in discerning and confronting the lies in my own heart, what that means is we put away falsehood. That means we have discernment. And so when we're with each other in the body, we can hear more quickly the lies in someone else. We can come alongside them in love. I'm more helpful to others because I can help them see the lies they're falling prey to. Why? Because I've dealt with them. I'm dealing with them currently in my own heart. So let those realities be an incentive to do that hard work of evaluating your thoughts with Scripture, of humbling yourself and seeking help and getting that, that expedited in your life. So what I want to do now is with most of the time we have left, at least, let's work out uh, a few examples here. And let's just explore what these, what these points look like um, worked out in a couple practical examples. So let's look at the, the sin of anger. And let's say that there's a teenager who is really struggling to respond well when his parents make a decision for his life that he disagrees with. So let's say recently he's asked by one of his friends to sleep over at that friend's house after the Friday night basketball game. parents said no because the friend they don't think is a good influence and it's not the first time they've said no and it's also not the first time that our teenager has responded poorly so it's become a pattern the teen knows his anger is wrong he's humbled by it he wants to change but he feels overwhelmed in the moment with his passion What's he supposed to do? Well, he's already identified that sin pattern. He's already isolated that circumstance. He can pinpoint his sin pattern of angry responses to his parents. But if we're going to follow the logic here, the next step would be to capture his thoughts. What was he thinking in the moment that they said no? If you were to write it down, it might sound something like this. I think I have a slide up here for you. Whoops, just ignore that there. Um, all right, here's the thought. If you were to capture it, I realize it's like micro-sized there, so sorry about that. It would sound like this. I can't believe they're still treating me like a kid. I can't wait until I'm old enough to get out of here move out of this house and show them how I can actually take care of myself just fine. Thank you. Now, caveat, that's not just a teenage student. I have a four-year-old at home, and uh, pretty sure she said something like this recently. All right. Let's say the teen is listening to the message, and he's thinking, all right, I'm going to capture my thoughts. So that's, that's what I'm thinking, Clay. That's what I'm thinking. That's what's, that's what's running through my mind. Actually, that's what I've said uh, to my parents. And uh, what do I do with that? 
Well, the next question is, what's his underlying beliefs? What assumptions are driving his response in this moment? What do you think? Well, it's, this is super challenging to do this in like a hypothetical scenario, but just bear with me. Even just from that one little statement, it's pretty apparent that he thinks he knows better than mom and dad, right? At least in this situation. He thinks his maturity is greater than what his parents are giving him credit for, and ultimately, he's claiming that he is wiser than his parents in this scenario. So, what's an underlying belief? This young man's life? I know better than my parents. I know better than my parents. Is that true? Quick, moving on. Okay. Well, if we're helping our, our teen, and we're not the offended parent, <clears throat> then we're going to move on along and help him evaluate that assumption with truth, right? And generally speaking, guess where wisdom resides, with the young or with the old? With the old, that's right. The Bible indicates that wisdom is with those who are older and experienced more than with the younger. So let's take a few examples here. This is Job speaking, okay? So Job says, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Now again, a, a reality is most of the time true, right? It's wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Now let's think about the converse. What about young people? Well, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So folly is associated with the younger. So, generally, the scriptures, we could go to a lot more, but these scriptures would challenge this assumption that he knows better. That he's wiser than his parents. His old self, that old and deceived edemic nature, might tell him he's wiser than his parents, but he's not. Well, how would we know in this case? Well, his angry reaction, for one, his anger is telling on him right now. He's unwilling to listen to the counsel or the advice of his parents. He just blows up. This teen's not coming by and, say, and saying, hey, can you please give me your feedback about my character? Like, what, what's making you distrust me? I want to I grow in that area, right? Tell me what's making you leery about giving me more responsibilities. What could I do to take more responsibility and show you that? Making progress and growing. That's not what he's saying. He's blowing up. At least in the moment, he's convinced he's right. He is wise in his own eyes. And look at what the Proverbs say about that. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. And to pile onto that, wise sons actually seek counsel and they listen. To the advice of their father. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So the point here, and again, we're just kind of staying in Proverbs and in, in that wisdom literature, but you could go to literally so many passages to help confront this idea that I knew better than my parents, or pride, the, there's so many things. But 
what I want you to see here is that these particular truths challenge the assumption that the king knows better than the parents. The Lord in this moment is revealing to the king what is true. To use our analogy from earlier, this is the accurate map. And it goes against everything that team feels in the moment. And while we're here on this illustration, let's just challenge one more maybe underlying belief that just from that statement this team has. He's essentially saying that to obey his parents isn't best for him in the moment. Obeying and honoring my parents is not best for me right now. That's it. You see that belief that's underlying that response? He's essentially saying that to obey his parents isn't what's going to bring him the most benefit. What's best, what he wants, is getting to hang out with that friend. Maybe he fears being left out of that peer group. Maybe he fears being left out of some experience that they might have. And, and you know, if we were talking with him, maybe we could ferret that out a little bit more. But regardless, this is one of his underlying beliefs in that moment. He's thinking it's not best for him to honor his parents right now either verbally and how he responds or attitudinally or, or, you know, whatever, even if it's not outright rebellion, if he's just sneaking out and going to, the, going to the friend's house anyway. But is that underlying belief true? Let's evaluate it. He's essentially saying that sinning in this moment, being rebellious, at least in his attitude, is better than obeying and honoring. But what has Christ called him to? He's called him to obedience and honor. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So that means the teen's assumption is that obedience to Christ, right now as he obeys his parents, is bad for him. Or at least it's not best for him. He might be thinking the, uh, the assumption is Christ is causing me to miss out on something that would be better. Christ is withholding something good for me, something that's beneficial, and he's starting to sound a lot like someone else we've looked at. Starting to sound a lot like Eve, isn't it? God's holding out on me. And that assumption has to be challenged. The Bible challenges that assumption. Obedience always brings blessing. He might miss out on a night with a friend, but he's bringing pleasure to Christ, and he's going to be rewarded by Christ for his obedience. So if you boil it down, his decision to obey his parents is really a decision to trust Jesus. Does he really believe that Jesus' instructions are best? That they are that he will reward those who seek to obey him. Because this decision is tethered to faith. It's a fight to faith. It's a fight for faith, to believe what goes against this young man's desires. Because his desires is what we've been accepting. But let's change the analogy a little bit. Let's say that his parents are being a little bit too strict. Okay? Let's say that if we're able to evaluate the situation with perfect impartiality, that his friend really isn't a bad influence, 
parents have kind of made some judgments about this friend based on some things they've seen, and they've kind of been rash judgments. But the friend's actually not that bad of a dude. Okay? It wouldn't, wouldn't be that harmful to go hang out with him overnight. His parents are being fearful, and they're cautious. Should he still sin? Our teen I'm talking about. Does this give him the right to blow up at his parents and resent his parents because they're fearful? Well, no, obviously. This teen can still make a gracious appeal, even if they, and, but even if they deny his appeal, he's still got a choice of whether or not he will trust Jesus. How so? Well, what has Jesus promised to him? He's promised him, for example, that all things work together for good in his life. Even a decision motivated by fear from his parents. This will work out for his good. He has to believe that in a moment. Now, we'll come back to this in a minute, but right now, what I'm wanting to show you is just, I'm wanting to show you how the bad behavior is connected ultimately to an underlying belief, which is, has to be challenged by what is true. Let's look at some other just quick examples, not on the screen, but just we'll, we'll flip back to this, this here. Say someone's tempted to look at internet pornography. Okay, that's the pattern. Number two, what's, what's the thought? Could be a lot, right? But something like this. I know I shouldn't do this, but man, this is really going to, is it really going to be that detrimental? Is it really going to hurt me that badly to just look? I'm not doing anything with a real person. Nobody's affected by this. Let's say that's the real. Is it really going to be that detrimental to look at this? I'm not doing anything with that real person. Nobody's affected by it. Let's unpack that. What are some underlying beliefs that are there? Well, this person's really saying that his lust doesn't affect him that much. Or her lust doesn't affect her that much. It's just a male issue. But is that true? Proverbs says it leads to death. This person also says, I'm not doing anything with a real person. Nobody else is affected by this. So the underlying belief is, I'm not affecting anybody else either. Is that true? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says that our sin patterns we bring into the church, particularly lust, defiles the body. Defiles the body. It, it, it defiles the church you're a part of. And not only that, but 2 Timothy chapter 2 says it renders us ineffective in our discipleship. Because our consciences are, are trashed and we're in patterns of sin. We don't see clearly. So this means there's somebody in the body that's suffering because of your impurity, because of your lack of growth. Meaning, you're, like, you're not growing, and so there's somebody that needs you in the body 
but you're, you're enslaved in sin, and so you're, you're, you're not growing, so you're actually affecting, because of your lack of growth, you're affecting the growth of that other believer that needs you in that moment. The Lord's given you a gift. He's given you multiple gifts, most likely to be used in the context of the church, and you're not going to be faithful in using those gifts because you're ensnared in sin. So you actually are harming a lot of other people when you're engaging in sexual sin. The underlying belief has to be challenged by what is true. Let's just say fear. Let's look at an example of fear. You just received a call back from your doctor and they want to speak to you about your cancer screening and it sounds really serious. scheduled, the follow-up appointment is scheduled in a week, you're waking up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep, you have lost your appetite, now I'm not saying that, that those are bad things, if you're waking up and you've lost your appetite with, the, with something like this, with a trial like this, but if it's leading to sinful fear, we have to own it, okay, so, so what would a thought, capture the thought, what would this look like, what, what might you be saying, what if I have cancer? What if it's terminal? And, and maybe this is the recurring thought. I'm going to meet my mom. I'm watching my kids grow up. At my age, I'm going to miss out on watching my grandkids experiencing their lives as they grow up. And maybe that's the recurring thought over and over that's waking you up. So what are the underlying beliefs there? Well, one of them might be that I'm saying that my days can be cut short. Is that true? From a human perspective, yeah. But from God's perspective? Psalm 139 says, all my days are written in your book. They're numbered by my good God. I can't live one day longer or one day shorter than what my good God has ordained for my life. There might be another underlying belief here that says if I, if I die early, then I'll miss out on something that's better than what is coming. Is that true? joys of this life are going to pale in comparison to the intermediate joy that we experience when we're with Christ without a resurrected body. Paul said he would rather depart and be with Christ even before the resurrection. So that means that that intermediate state is better than this state. But that's not where this thing ends. It ends with the resurrection from the dead. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 1 to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means we're going to be resurrected. We're going to inherit the new earth. We're going to experience joys untold, meaningful work, relationships with a, with a depth and a profundity that we, we can't even imagine, that will eclipse even grandchildren.
those underlying beliefs with what is true. Or how about that husband who is just really struggling to get home from work, get dinner on the table, get the kids in bed, finally sit down, turn on the TV, and the wife wants to cook. He's failing at listening to his wife. That's the same problem. Because he's commanded by Peter to dwell with his wife in an understanding way, which means he has to listen to her. Right? That's understanding. And he thinks, why does she always, number two, capture the thoughts, why does she always want to talk right after we finally sit down for the evening? Why can't we just veg out for a little while? The last thing I want to do is rehash the details of my day. What are some of those underlying assumptions? I'm implying that talking with my wife isn't good for me in this moment. There's something better for me than talking with my wife. I'm meeting her needs. Is that true? not. Again, commanded to live with our wives in an understanding way, which means we have to we have to listen to them. We want to draw them out. We want to know what's going on, how they're thinking. And for them to love us and trade for us, they have to know what's going on in our lives as much as we don't want to do that. Okay? Like we don't want to rehash the details of our day. Men. We're also commanded to love our wives as we love ourselves and that that brings return into our lives. We shepherd our wives. It's a direct benefit to the husband. So really the assumption that talking to my wife, shepherding her, that's not good for me in the moment, listening to her, that's actually great for you in the moment. Uh, it will bring a lot of benefit to your life if you do that, says Paul in Ephesians 5. Oh, how about this assumption? That mindlessly scrolling through my screen will bring relief. bring rest? Are you rejuvenated? After looking at social media for an hour? Or reading your Fox News headline? Mindlessly scrolling through my screen will bring relief and pleasure. That's what I want. That's what's going to bring me the relief that I want. But is that true? No. It's not that those things are bad and you can't keep up with the news. Like That's great. Those are great things to do. But who gives rest? Christ. Not your device. Christ gives rest to the weary soul. Come to me, all who weary heavy laden. Amen. At the end of the day. And I will give you rest. Christ will rejuvenate us. Christ will give us rest. And he will empower us to live with our wives in an understanding way there at the end of the day. So what I'm saying is I'm just trying to illustrate to you that these, to renew your mind, means you have to confront these underlying beliefs that the old man should just churn them out. And once you've done that, once you've got some truths in your hands to battle those lies, what's next? Well, you've got to instill that truth in your heart. We'll go quickly through these. Don't worry. You've got to get it in you. 
You have to instill that truth deeply, cement it. This is what Psalm 119.11 means when, when the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Stored it up. Cemented it to my memory so that it is accessible without my Bible. This means then that you need some way to be constantly reviewing these principles. Especially with the settings sin area. Okay, you, you need some way to review these principles, review these truths, and have a time to review those specific truths. One practical suggestion that's, that's easy is you could just fold this in to your quiet time in the morning. And if you don't have a quiet time in the morning where you seek the Lord, you seek his face before your day starts, wake up 15 minutes earlier than you normally do, review the verses, and ask for the Lord's help in believing those verses. Just start there. You could build on it later, but start there. That at least gets you in the truth, and that at least gets the truth in front of you before your day starts. You can tune your instrument before you play it versus trying to tune it while you play it. Make it your goal to hide the truth in your heart, especially in these areas of besetting sin. And you know, I've, I've said this before, but I love incorporating these kinds of verses into prayers I pray at the start of the day. If you, if you struggle fo staying focused in prayer, I would encourage you to, again, write that out. So what might this sound like for that teen that we talked about earlier that was struggling with his parents? It might sound something like this. Father, thank you so much for revealing your truth to me. You know that I'm struggling with responding in anger to my parents when I don't get what I want. I confessed it to you yesterday, but today I want to make progress. I know I'm tempted to believe I know better than them, but your word says that wisdom is with older people, not with younger people. Help me remember that my parents are way more experienced than I am. Help me remember that as I'm obeying and honoring them, as I'm learning to speak to them with respect, that this pleases you. Help me remember that you will reward me for this one day, more than I could ever imagine. Help me see how you're building in me a faithful heart as I learn to submit to my earthly authorities, even to my parents, as hard as that feels at times. Help me see that my choice to obey mom and dad is really a choice to trust you, a, a choice to trust that you're working out everything for my good. Thank you that you're with me today and that you're, you promise that's what a prayer like that would sound like. As he's working, as his team is working to instill the truth in his heart, review it, and pray to the Lord around it. Now, next time, we're going to really talk about the, the final practice in this passage that's so connected to what everything we just said. And that new practice is, is the practice of putting on the new self, where we could say, yielding to the truth that we know, Yielding to believe and to orient our lives around what we believe and act in accordance with those, with those truths. We feel overwhelmed in the moment of temptation, but the, where this really gets cemented is not simply in the memorization of the truth, but it's learning to act on the truth in those situations. That's where the truth becomes convictional for you and you'd be willing to die for it. Now, as we end tonight, if all this seems just overwhelming to you, some of these may be new ideas for, for those of you who are new around here. If it seems overwhelming to you, I just, I want, just let me encourage you for just like one or two minutes here. I know I'm a little bit over. Just let me, give me one or two minutes here. Let me encourage you. 
the encouraging part about this process is you have a new nature. You have a new capacity to actually be renewed by the truth. Before you did not. Before, and when you were outside of Christ, you were dead, hardened in your hearts. But now he's given you a new capacity for the truth in the spirit of your mind. It's not a hardened heart anymore. It's not a heart of stone, but it's a new heart, a receptive heart, a heart of flesh. And that means that you have the capacity to actually understand what is true and not the lie. Your fundamental nature has been changed. And not only your nature, you have a new teacher too. God himself, through his spirit, is ready to teach you. He's indwelling you. He's willing to teach you, able to teach you. We saw that we saw toward the beginning of our series that God's given us his spirit. And even if this mind renewal process seems challenging to you right now, God is on your side. He will help reveal these things to you as you seek his truth. You'll actually be able to understand now that he's made you alive. And that is a sweet encouragement. And it's so necessary to remember when we're trying to fight these things. We're like, we, don't, we can't, we don't, we're not really sure what we're believing. When we're trying to fight that propaganda, we don't know how. It's so encouraging to remember that the Spirit is with me and He is going to help illumine the truth to me. And it's sort of a variation on what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you. Think over what I say, because the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that is such a promise to us tonight. Such a promise as we fight for faith, as we seek to renew our minds. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the clarity of your word. Where would we be without your truth? We're thankful that the truth is made known to us by your spirit, and the truth sets us free. And I pray for that ministry of your spirit tonight. I pray that you would encourage the saints in Jesus' name.